So I thought we would start where we left off from the last reflection um, that we were exploring together last week. And, you know, really where we ended uh, when I was offering the reflection last week was enlightenment, right? Or awakening or a very, very wise form of awareness. You could say we ended at insight, we ended at release, we ended at an aha. We ended at somewhere. So we'll just start at that somewhere uh, and work with it in all its various forms because the truth is, is this process of release, of seeing clearly, of waking up, as we all know, runs a tremendously large continuum from the most, almost so ordinary that we miss them to ones that are so life-changing that we can't even remember what it was like before. So we'll just start at enlightenment. That seems like a good place to start. I want to share with you about this book. If you're not aware of this book, it just came out um, last year. It's called The Hidden Lamp. And what it is, is it's a book of all these different uh, koans, uh, not just from the Zen tradition, but actually from multiple traditions. And with each koan, a different senior woman teacher from all of the different Buddhist traditions was invited to explore the koan with her own reflections. So um, among the many, many, many teachers who have written chapters, our esteemed Sylvia Borstein and our esteemed Mary Grace Orr are in this book but I'm not sharing their chapters. <laughs> they can share their own chapters. <laughs> uh, I want to share one from Gila Downey. And uh, Gila Downey is a Zen teacher from South Africa. And this is the koan that she explored. A person asked, what is a minor enlightenment? And the master said, a what? And the student said, a minor kensho, a minor satori. And the master replied, enlightenment is enlightenment. Sometimes the glimpses are big and sometimes they are small, but it's still one and the same thing. Don't think that the enlightenment is bigger or smaller. The practitioner continued, I had the impression that once you got enlightenment, you got it. And the master replied, once you have realized it, you will always know it. But if you don't keep your training up, heaven help you, you'll be worse off than you were before. <laughs> it's not something you get. It's not something you keep for eternity. Training, as Dogen says, is enlightenment. This is why the Buddha always carried his begging bowl and always wore his robe. A lot of people have thought, why didn't he just sit back and enjoy it? And this is the punchline that I love so much. The last line is, enlightenment isn't something you have. It's something you are. It's something you do. So Gila offers a wonderful commentary that you can check out at your leisure should you choose to explore this book. But she has some reflection questions at the end of her commentary that I wanted to drop in to begin. Uh, our conversation here. She asks, what is the smallest experience of enlightenment you have ever had? 
Is it possible you missed it all together? What would change in your heart if enlightenment wasn't a noun after all? I am tremendously grateful that in the training that I received here in Spirit, at Spirit Rock, that it's actually been held as enlightenments, not enlightenment. Uh, that the process of waking up is a process of verbing, not a noun. And so what I want to explore tonight, and, and we'll be exploring in some of the next nights as well in various different ways, is about insight. It's about our ahas and awakenings and how we integrate those and how we live it. Because at the end of the last talk, one of the things that I mentioned is it doesn't end at release. It begins. And even that is way too conceptual. But I think you know on a linear level what I mean doesn't end. Something new opens up. Something new is possible that maybe we couldn't have imagined before. So what is an insight? It's a commentary by Tanjeff. Insight is not a matter of belief or contemplation, but of direct seeing. Belief and contemplation may be conducive to the seeing, And an undefined level of belief and discernment may actually guarantee that someday in this lifetime the seeing will occur. But only with the actual seeing does there come a dramatic shift in the course of one's life and one's relationship to the Dhamma. So again, this points right back into these three kind of fundamental insights that we've been exploring with the Four Noble Truths there's some level of contemplation and reflection and intellectual understanding that is extremely helpful. And it's one step. And then we directly see. And that's another really important step, as we know. And then we know what we know. In a way, this whole reflection is about knowing what we know and how that process happens. And the truth is, I'm going to point this way, I'm going to point that way, and suggest this, and suggest that. And all of that is held in the mystery. So, in fact, as we all know very, very well, there are many insights, many ahas, many awakenings, not one. So this is from one Chinese master who actually died at the age of 120. So a master in the path and got the privilege of an incredibly long life. I take it to heart uh, when he said at the end of his life, there are many minor satori's or awakenings before a major satori. There are many major satori's on the path to genuine awakening. So I know, I know from my own path that there are times when enlightened retirement just sounds really good. We work really hard here. 
It's like, please, can I just have a mini enlightenment after, or a mini retirement after that insight? And the answer is, yeah, we can rest. And yeah, we continue. So I want to just mention um, a few of, of the many kind of uh, thematic ways that we have insights and ahas and, and wake up, and they'll all be familiar uh, to us uh, to a certain degree. I also wanted to reference uh, Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, as a good resource book for the month after your retreat, if you don't have it. Because it's really all about this process of integration, uh, how we wake up and how we integrate it. So there's the ways we have insights and ahas um, around the doorway of the mind and the transpersonal. From very, very subtle levels to very, very gross levels to from ordinary to amazing and everything in between. But the mind doorway, the transpersonal doorway... So this is an example um, that I love that kind of calls it into the room of of my heart uh, whenever I read this quote. It's a quote by Alice Walker, and it actually comes from The Color Purple and one of the characters in The Color Purple. And I like it because it's pointing to the fact that every human being has the potential and actually has the process of insight and ahas. So her words... One day, when I was sitting quiet and feeling like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything, not separate at all. I knew that if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laughed and cried and I ran all over the house. I just knew what it was. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. It's like, that's those aha moments. When they happen, we can't miss it. And there's some part of our being that's just laughing and crying and running all over the house and going, it is known. It is understood. It's a very transpersonal process at that moment. And the doorway of the mind is opening, in this case, to the universal interdependence, the oneness in this particular case. Then there's the kind of ahas and insights that we have that are so important, the doorways into the psychological or the emotional. And again, back to this first koan, it's all insight, it's all aha, it's all awakening. Not preferencing or prioritizing, they're all needed. So many of you have come in and and shared with us Um, simple yet transformational things like I'm noticing that core belief about not good enough and the way that it played out in this situation and somehow through grace and practice and I don't know what, it was known and there was a compassionate response and the whole thing popped and I could feel the resonance in my body and all of a sudden I could see a different possibility. That was a very important moment. It starts to break up the solidity of the kind of deepest parts of the glue that hold us together as a solid, separate sense of self. And it allows us to start to move into the freedom of 
a selfing sense of self that's dynamic, that's, uh, you know, open, that's not as conditioned, right? So here's an example of this from a practitioner who was working with, uh, with, with deep, deep emotional and psychological pain. Probably some of these core beliefs. We've all got them. And through working with it, there was yet a further transformation around that. And for her, it was like this. She said, I could feel my pain transform into the pain. The pain of the world. I saw how the universe moves and the planet is on fire, and yet it can all be held didn't touch anything. It rested in the middle of an immense peace. Sometimes that's how it unfolds. It's so personal, the, uh, the initial aha, and then it opens up into the universal. And then we have to reintegrate that back through the, uni- the personal again so that we don't move into some spiritual bypass like it should always be the pain of the world and I'm not important and I don't exist. And that's, that's nihilism, right? Yet another kind of whole range of uh, insights and awakenings uh, that we have sometimes are through the vehicle of the body itself and the energetic of the body, this, tr- this tremendous, through the training, um, possibility of the energetic body awakening itself. And there's so many examples of that. And I'm noticing I'm even hesitating to mention any of them because I don't want to plant ideas that like you should be having one of these before the retreat's over, right? But just the energy becomes more than what we're habitually used to in a multitude of different ways. And it influences the mind and it influences the heart. And sometimes it's quite sweet and sometimes it's quite intense, pleasant or unpleasant or both, right? But uh, huge, huge impact. And integrating those is its own process. So we have an insight or a, a letting go or an awakening or something, and it's really, really easy to kind of go, okay, that's it, right? I'm done. And in fact, the invitation at that very moment is a new cycle. So I want to talk a little bit about a a model that um, really just explains it to me. And perhaps it'll be helpful for some of you. But the invitation of explaining the model that has that I've been using for a number of years to kind of metaphorically talk about this, I'd really encourage us all to come up with the model that works for us so that we have something to track this experience of integration with. And often simple is better. So the model that I use is a tripod or kind of a a triangle. And so on the left side or your right, my left, of This tripod is just ordinary states of awareness. Very conditioned, very familiar, just ordinary. And then we go on the spiritual path, all of it, 
all the pieces of our spiritual path, everything included, and it progresses and progresses and matures and matures and gets wiser and wiser. And then we have these moments up at the pinnacle of the triangle or the tripod called extraordinary. And again, the extraordinary can be a little extraordinary or life-changingly extraordinary, but there it is. You know, there's some extraordinary something, an insight, an aha, an awakening, something. So there we have this. But then there's this descent. And this descent is called digestion or integration. And we come back down. And this side over here is ordinary again. So it's ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. But this ordinary over here is not the same as this ordinary over here. Because it's completely informed by what was understood. By what was experienced. And so, even though nobody might know the difference, we're just manifesting in a very simple, ordinary way. We know what we know, and it's informing the way that we're moving forward. So I'll give a couple of examples. Ordinary. Sense of self, solid, separate. You know, the way we were raised, the way we're conditioned, totally understandable. Spiritual path, spiritual path, spiritual path. Wow! First insight into not-self, however we experienced it, or 15th insight, or 250th insight on this retreat, because they're happening all the time, actually. And sometimes they're, they're not extraordinary enough for us to actually go, huh, something's going on here, something's untangling, something's loosening up, but there it is. Then we go back over here to ordinary, and we're just experiencing self as a process, as a verb instead of as a noun. And out of that, we get to be authentically eccentric. Have you noticed how many of the masters, if you've heard or read the masters or been in the presence of the master, they are so eccentric. Have you noticed this? You look at it, you go, really? They're awake? They seem to be like more personality than ever sometimes. (laughs) I know my teacher's that way. Um, And it's like, oh, because there's this knowing of what's been transformed, and so actually they can just relax and be themselves. Sylvia was talking about that last night, how important it is to just relax the conditioning enough that we can be fully ourselves in an authentic but aware and conscious way. So it's more skillful. Another examples. Ordinary, over here. How about caring about others from a personal perspective? So all of our conditionings with that, we care about somebody, so sometimes we're codependent, sometimes we get a little overwhelmed, sometimes we get a little bit too involved, but it's really, it's beautiful caring, right? We go on the spiritual path, develop, 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 mature, 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 extraordinary. And it's not so separate. It moves into the non-dual and real deep caring and compassion for all beings. And then we digest and we integrate and we digest and we integrate and it's ordinary again. But We know. We know. And there's been enough integration of some of the pieces that um, hold back our activity of service that where we lose energy, that actually this ordinary, we can just have a lot of humility and offer service from that humility. How can I help? Because we're not lost. We're not caught. We can just be of service. There's a line from Joseph Goldstein that I just love. 
kind of about this. He talks about it a lot, so those of you that sat with him over the years, he'll say this, he'll say, somebody has an insight or something, he'll go, it's the tip of the iceberg. Someone comes in and goes, I just woke up. And he'll say, it's the tip of the iceberg. And then he'll smile and he'll go, it's always the tip of the iceberg. And I just love that. Because it really calls us out on the part that like, wants to even make our own insights solid and permanent so that we're going to be okay for the rest of our life. <laughs> he just says, it's the tip of the iceberg. Good job. It's always the tip of the iceberg. There's more. And the passion of that, the excitement of that. It's not like the drudgery of this path is never going to end. It's the joy of it. Even if we got 100% awakened, it's not the end. The Buddha gave him service for the rest of his life. And he practiced every day in that service. That inspires me. So we'll talk a little bit about this progression, this cultivation and fruition of aha, of insight, of whatever you want to call it. So whether it's a release or letting go or an insight, it's kind of like I said in the last talk, often it's small moments many times. And in those small moments many times, brief, but the system moves into sometimes the timeless. And so within that timeless, it doesn't matter how short or how long, in the same way that it matters on this plane. Talking a little bit about the experience that go beyond experience. So Ajahn Chah puts it like this. Within itself, the mind is timeless, naturally peaceful, unmoving, rest in this natural state. Or we'll revisit Upasaka Ki, the great woman master from Thailand of last century. So we looked at this in the last talk. So one of her big ahas. Then there arose an awareness that was sustained by itself. Slowly, I put my legs and hands back into position. At the same time, the mind was in a state of awareness, absolutely and solidly still, seeing clearly into the elementary phenomenon of existence as they arose and disbanded, changing in line with their nature, and also seeing a separate condition inside with no arising, disbanding, or changing, a condition beyond birth and death, something very difficult to put clearly into words because it was a realization of the elementary phenomena of nature, completely internal and individual. After a while, I slowly got up and lay down to rest. The state of mind remained there as a stillness that sustained itself deep down inside. Eventually, the mind came out of the state and gradually returned to normal. 
So there's some archetypal pieces in her story, as I mentioned last time. So I want to mention a couple of the other pieces of this story that is our story. It's a human story of deep insight. And so sometimes there's an insight that happens that's profound enough that there's actually, you could call it a state that accompanies it, that lingers. The mind is in a different place for a time. Staying with that, resting in it. And it's a lot easier said than done because it's very easy for the conditioned mind to jump in and want to be involved in all that. I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Then she talks about laying down to rest and how the mind came out of that state and returns to normal, which is also part of the progression. And there are times with us when we have an insight or there's a deep state of meditation and then it passes. And there's this tricky point with it where it's like we want to stay with the direct experience. Okay, it's here, resting, being known. There's a kind of quality to it, a state. And then it's starting to decrease and then it's starting to disappear and something more normal, recognizably normal, arises. And this thing about reaching out to recreate, and also this thing about grieving what is lost, is really, really tricky and really, really important. I can't tell you how many practitioners over the years have come in to check in with me and said something like, meditation you know, is or was going really well, and this and this and this, and now it's starting to come out, or you know, I'm still in it, but I'm not attached. And it's like, okay, okay. You know, is there a place of rest in between being so quick to protect against the grasping and the grief? There's a place that's so subtle, it's so hard to describe, and really we can only find it in our own practice, in between the protection against the grasping and the grief and the experience itself, where we can just rest and go, oh, can feel it dissolving, can feel normalcy starting to arrive, can be directly with an awareness, that direct feeling of loss before the drama, before me and my loss, and also the longing, the longing to awaken. Without the project, without figuring it out, without me and my ideas, just the direct longing. So sweet. I have been known to say to people, oh, be attached. (laughs) Truthfully, not because I mean be attached, but just because it leaves space for the process to unfold without being cut off. There's something that we do habitually at times that just, it cuts the whole process off because we're so concerned about it. So I'll say to them something like, don't worry so much about being attached. We'll track together. Be with this process. Notice what the mind does just post an insight. Because it's going to get involved, right? What happens after an insight? Sometimes we continue in the flow for a time. But at some point or another, the mind, the ordinary thinking mind is going to get involved in concretizing and meaning making and drama and selfing. 
because that's what it does, right? So can we include that? Pema Chodron puts it like this. Do not hang on to anything, even the realization that there's nothing solid to hang on to. Okay, so let's look at this instruction in action. Do not hang on to anything, even the realization there's nothing solid to hang on to. So then we can notice the inevitable meaning-making. The, the conceptual mind, its job is to figure it out. So then it starts trying to figure it out. It's like, oh, I don't have to hang on to that, but I don't have to reject it. I don't have to fight with it. It's just like, here's movement happening in the mind. The label is figuring it out. The energetic is like this. The body feels like this. Because sometimes we get so excited, we blow out a little, and we lose all of our tools temporarily. And that's okay. But w- and when we do, and then we realize it, what's the next step, right? Compassion. Oh, got excited, blew out a little bit. Now I'm like, I don't know where I am. <laughs> you know? Okay, I, you know, it's a little bit too much. I care. I, ca- I care about this complexity through the caring, right? Or as Sylvia puts it, sweetheart, it's okay, take a breath, take another breath. (laughs) So there is a process from this extraordinary to the ordinary where the self actually needs to be reintegrated back in. But it doesn't need to be reintegrated back in in the same form of self that it was on this side of the tripod can be much more experienced as a process happening to a system, as a verb, as energies and thoughts and emotions and movement, and it's not so solid because the craving, clinging, becoming is being relaxed. And so we can actually experience it in a quite spontaneous and even delightful way. There's less suffering. And there's a part around this about teasing apart the selfing and the clinging from the natural impulse and intention to integrate. And this is really key. And the truth is, is that only we can know this level. One part is the selfing and the concretizing and the meaning making and the clinging to whatever the insight was. And the other side is that there's a natural impulse and intention in our system to integrate. And so we keep nudging and leaning, oh, it starts to come up. had a complete, amazing insight into the three characteristics. Wow, I must be close to full enlightenment. We get all excited. And we've all done this, our version of this. And then it's, oh, there was an insight, getting excited. Can I actually refuel, redirect that excitement into the intention to integrate and continue waking up? It's incredible energy there. It just needs to be redirected a little bit. And we can train ourselves to do this. It's phenomenal. So one of the ways I'm on the lookout for it is certain thoughts. And I would really encourage you this week and in the time to come to look out for what are the thoughts that indicate to you that you are in this part of the cycle. So one of the thoughts I look out for myself is this. The thought... I want to live my whole life like this. <laughs> okay, so clearly I'm not the only one that's had that thought. <laughs> it's a very natural thought to have. And so while the plans around how that's going to work will never work that way, and then we have just used a tremendous amount of amazing energy 
that we could have used to deepen still further on the plan, completely understandably, you know, it's habit. We can go, oh, great. There's a lot of energy there. There's a lot of inspiration. I'm going to feel that so fully in the body, in the whole system. I'm going to feel just how deeply I want to awaken and see that that thought is actually indicating that which is a wholesome mind state. But if we don't see it, if we don't know it for what it is, it leads to all kinds of complexity that doesn't really support us. So, you know, there's all kinds of fantasies and rehearsals of enlightened living that we have had, will have, could have. And again, it's this piece that only we can know about seeing the truth in it and seeing the wanting in it. And so in my own practice, this has been really interesting, discerning where is the fantasy part of it and where is actually something that I would call an embodied rehearsal. So I'll I'll give you a thematic example of that. One year I was sitting this retreat and... um, I don't actually even remember what the insight was, but I remember that it was quite impactful. So something had really shifted in the mind stream. And it was towards the end of the retreat, and something had really shifted. There was a process of integration already happening and being known. And um, uh, at dinner time, I uh, went in to take a shower. Those of you that are on eight precepts, have you noticed that dinner time is a great time to take a shower when you're on eight precepts? So I remember it's dinner time, I went to take a shower. I got in the shower, and it was like from the moment I turned the water on, this whole process unfolded that was kind of mysterious to me. And the process was, was this, this story arose in the mind, and it was full of content. It was a very vivid story and kind of like a, a fantasy of an enlightened future, right? And it was a story about a make-believe event that could happen on this retreat and how I would respond to it. And what was interesting about it is even though it was very, very heavy in the content level and the thought level, what was interesting was actually that every single response that happened in this make-believe fantasy story was completely outside of my own habitual conditioning. So it was like surprising responses. And it's going on, it's going on, I'm taking a shower, and I'm totally not mindful about the shower, by the way. This whole process is unfolding. And... By the time the showers are, I turn the shower off and the, the fantasy of the story was complete. And I suddenly realized that what was actually happening was not the content of this fantasy or the story about enlightened living. What was actually happening was the somatic system was deeply integrating the felt sense of these new responses that were outside of my conditioning. And it was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I could start to see when those things would happen other times that I didn't have to get so caught in the content of it. It was just movement in the mind that I could drop deep in the body and really feel what does it feel like to have the psyche shift that much in embodied presence. That's deep, deep integration. 
And then we have to really discern the truth of these processes and where it's just wanting and fantasizing and like making a meaning and a thing about it. And only we can know. So then there's the question about enlightened retirement and what remains after something shifts. And I'm both sorry and happy to tell you what you already know, which is what remains is more purification. So I want to bring in the voice of Ajahn Sumedho about this. And this is from The Sound of Silence, and the title of the chapter I just love. The title of the chapter is When You're an Emotional Wreck. (laughs) So he's talking about this integration and including everything, and how after every insight and ahas, more remains. More is there to be purified. What does purified mean? A lot of you asked, what does purified mean? We use that word really loosely here. It means that everything that might get in the way of being as awake and free as we could be gets to be, it gets to arise because it does. It gets to be known, held in awareness, worked with, compassion, you know, transformed. Um, So he has this whole piece which is a little bit long, Um, about how the intellect talks about when things get emotionally messy and how embarrassing it is. And then he says, yeah, and and then I create this sense of self. Ajahn Sumedho is very emotional, and I don't want anyone to think that I'm emotional, I'm reasonable, and he's going on and on and on. He says, emotions are often ignored or rejected and not appreciated. We don't learn from them because we're always rejecting or denying them. At least I found this easy to do. So sati sampajanya is like opening up and being willing to be a mess. So this mindfulness wisdom. Let a mess be a mess. A mess is like this. Wet, weak, all over the place, foolish and silly and stupid. It's all like this. Sati sampajanya embraces it all. It doesn't pass judgment or try to control or to pick and choose. But just the act of noticing, it's like this. Whatever emotion is present, this is the way it is. It's like this. So the point that includes, which is his reference to awareness, notice that it's the here and now, just switching on this imminent kind of attention. It's a slight shift, just relaxing and opening to this present, listening, being attentive. It's not going into some sort of super-duper samadhi at all. It's just like this. It's natural. You're not creating it. Not judging this, just embracing it. So it's not making a problem about the way it is. It's just knowing the way it is. So we can have a thousand insights, and we are, and we will, and we do. And we can still be an emotional mess. And it's like this. It's held in awareness. We continue to look and see what's being left out of this aha. What's being left out of this cycle of awareness, or a cycle of awakening, rather. And there's a whole piece around this, for me anyway, and as I've been talking to people over the years, I discovered for many of us, 
It's about what uh, I like to talk about is forgiving the first noble truth. And I picked up that phrase from my friend and colleague Larry Yang. We teach a lot together. And um, he talks about it when he teaches forgiveness. But for me, forgiving the first noble truth is forgiving that even though there's so much freedom available, so much can be untangled, so much can be released. We can't deny the reality of the first noble truth anyway. It's like forgiving life on life's terms for being the way it is anyway. And as we forgive and unwind and relax into the pain that isn't optional, about our lives and about this world, uh, we start to forgive. We can be more and more present and presenced. So again from Ajahn Sumedho, he's talking about the refuge of awareness. The freedom from suffering that the Buddha talked about isn't in itself an end to pain and stress. Instead, it's a matter of creating a choice. I can either get caught up in the pain that comes to me, attached to it, and be overwhelmed, or I can embrace it with acceptance and understanding and not add more suffering to the existing pain, the unfair experiences, the criticisms, or the misery that I face. Even after his enlightenment, the Buddha experienced all kinds of horrendous things. His cousin tried to murder him, people tried to frame him and blame him and criticize him. He experienced severe physical illness. But the Buddha didn't create suffering around those experiences. His response was never one of anger, resentment, hatred, or blame, but one of acknowledgement. To me, that's really powerful. Because it's not saying we don't acknowledge It's saying that we're not using our energy in the drama, in the extra, so that we can acknowledge with the kind of clarity and precision and fearlessness and power that we have available to us. The world needs that. So then we have fruition. And fruition is how the realizations that we have verify themselves. And one important process in fruition is actually uh, what I would call the testing of it and the fiddling of it. So we fiddle with it and we test it. But that's deceiving because what's the first thing I said? How the realization verifies itself. So that's a paradox. It can be tested, but we can't really test it. It can be verified, but we can't really verify it. It verifies itself. So I'll talk about how Upasaka Ki worked with that after her waking up. Aware right at awareness. The mind, if mindfulness and awareness are watching over it, won't meet with any suffering as the result of its actions. If suffering does arise, we'll be immediately aware of it and can put it out. This is one point of practice we can work at constantly 
And we can test ourselves by seeing how refined and subtle our overall awareness is. Whenever the mind slips away and goes out to receive external sensory contact, can it maintain its basic stance of mindfulness or internal awareness? The practice we need to work at in our everyday lives is to have constant mindfulness, constant all-around present awareness. Work at it in every posture, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Please make sure your mindfulness stays continuous. Right? So we can test it in that way. Another part of the process is of integration is actually refinding or redeveloping language and concepts as a part of the process. And many of you have come in and visited us and, you know, it's like something deep just moved in the practice and you just look at us and you say, I don't have any words. And we look at you and say, I hear you. Sometimes it's just beyond words. And then at some point the words start to come back. It's like, oh, now I could describe something about what happened. It's not actually the direct experience of what happened, but it's the finger pointing at the moon that can be articulated you know, in an appropriate way. And we can hold those words and concepts lightly. But it is part of the integration. It's important. Landing these insights in back in the world of concepts and ideas. So here's how Ajahn Sumedho challenges situations where he used to be reactive before his current level of insight. I began to deliberately challenge situations where I had been criticized This used to be unbearable for me because I couldn't take criticism. When people started finding fault with me or blaming me, I used to get very angry or aggressive or hurt or very offended, and I just didn't know how to deal with it. I felt rejected and misunderstood. Whether people's criticisms were accurate or just their own projections didn't matter. I couldn't take any form of criticism, even when it was deserved. So I began to see this fear of being blamed, of being rejected, of being criticized. And then he talks about how living in a community and being a teacher, that's just part of the process. He said, people like to find all kinds of faults with you. First they say, you're a great teacher, Ajahn Sumedho. And then they say, I've lost faith in you, Ajahn Sumedho. (laughs) And truthfully, that is what it's like to um, have a position of responsibility in our lives, right? People can put us up on a pedestal and then, oops, we just fell off and we're just sitting there, right? (laughs) Trying to be skillful and responsible with our responsibility. So. He says, as I have confidence in the awareness, I can bear criticism now. So for him, it was actually developing the confidence in the maturing and wising awareness that made it so that he could bear what for him was unbearable. I can bear criticism now, rejection and blame, even if it's totally unfair. My refuge is in awareness, not in my self-image or conditions around me. 
That's a really big deal. You know, in the face of the social injustice in our cultures at this time, um, and in the fact that we get reactive and others get reactive with us, and the praise and the blames just, you know, moving around, tapping different people on the shoulder. What's our refuge so that we can actually respond wisely, clearly, and skillfully? It's not condoning it, it's just saying, I'm not going to play the game. I've left that game. I have a different kind of aware, like a different kind of refuge. So for me, um, this I'm remembering in particular one cycle of testing. Uh, you know, kind of a, a deep process of insight in my own practice. This was um, many years ago. It was a period of deep insight in the practice. And I took about a year and a half and very, very intentionally tested the particular quality or maturity of awareness that was then available out of the practice. I said, okay, this seems like a refuge that's trustworthy. There's an intuition that it's a refuge that's trustworthy. Let's see how trustworthy it was. And it was a period in my own life um, where externally there was a lot of difficulty and a lot of complexity. And so because of the difficulty and complexity, there were strong emotions involved that would come and go in cycles and waves in my daily life practice. And I really took on the practice of like, bring it on. Not bring it on so that I could drown in it. Because, of course, the model is less is more. But what I was interested in was this thread of awareness. And did the thread ever falter? Did it ever deceive me? Did it ever desert? Was it always available without preference? And I wanted to know if that was true directly in the depths of deep pain and huge anger and profound sadness in everything else. And so I looked and I looked and I just let things come and let things go in my life and it was very, very difficult. And at the end of that period, there was that confidence for myself. And it doesn't matter what I understood out of that. What matters is these processes take courage, they take heart, they take perseverance. And we all do them. We all need to do them. Then there's a piece about rigorous honesty. And the rigorous honesty is about the remaining defilements. Sometimes it's put in the tradition, the clinging that remains, right? We wake up, dun-da-da-da, and then we reorient. What is the clinging that remains? Must be something. If anybody's 100% enlightened, let me know. Um, But till then, there's probably something. So this is a place where if we're not really, really careful, we can move into what we've been referencing all the way through the retreat is a spiritual bypassing. Because it's like, oh, something released. And then we start subtly trying to leave certain things out so that like we can bask in the release, 
but they're knocking on the door and we're like, I don't hear anything, I don't hear anything. And we can go so easily into a deep spiritual bypass that lasts a long time and really, really derails the next progression of practice, right? And it's just the tip of the iceberg, so we don't want to derail that. We want to include everything in this process from extraordinary to ordinary so that it's fully integrated, fully digested, fully available to be manifested in this world that needs it. So, um, as was mentioned before, uh, John Wellwood, the Dharma teacher and psychologist, came up with this term. I just want to say a little bit about it in his own words. Spiritual bypassing is a term I coined to describe a process I saw happening in the Buddhist community I was in, and also in myself. Although most of us were sincerely trying to work on ourselves, I noticed a widespread tendency to use spiritual ideas and practices to sidestep or avoid facing unresolved emotional issues, psychological wounds, and unfinished developmental tasks. When we are spiritually bypassing, we often use the goal of awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence, trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced and made peace with it. So this is where humility really, really comes in on the spiritual path. And I say humility because uh, you'll remember in one of the previous talks, humility allows us to be in our fullness and also outside of this very painful dynamic of comparing. Aha, there was an insight, I'm the best meditator on planet Earth, but I still have this... Uh, anger piece that I'm trying to get rid of and so actually I'm terrible. Humility actually stays in the center and just says, it's like this. And it's open and it's warm and it works with it and acknowledges our humanness. So we can see, oh, what's been left out that can be integrated what needs to be included. And it's, of course, being included, informed by the extraordinary, right? So it's not the same as before. And we start to move into this process of learning to live it. And part of learning to live it is going back into the world and being really, really careful with our thoughts, words, and deeds, right? This sila. I'm going to share a little quote from Ajahn Amaro. He says, Sila, or basic integrity, is the source of happiness. Sila is the source of true wealth. Sila is the cause of peacefulness. Therefore, let Sila be purified. And then he says, so Sila is all about how to be happy. We take these principles of kindness and virtue to heart and let them guide us. The cradle of Dhamma stays with us. This is our portable retreat. Nice, huh? So there's this relationship as the mind opens up and deepens, the heart opens up and deepens, the energy, the body opens up and deepens. There's this relationship between the awareness and the energy itself. As the mind wakes up more, the energy wakes up more. And what we know from experience is that when those two are out of alignment, the energy tends to move into habitual, conditioned, available 
habit patterns, which may or may not be skillful. And so it's really important to these basic practices as we're moving through deepening our own practice, whatever that looks like, of just the simple integrity. Because otherwise we get into issues that we've all either experienced or heard about. Some of the masters, they say, oh, it's all empty, right? And then their conduct, it doesn't match that understanding. There's been a confusion, there's been a disconnect between the energy and the awake. And it's fallen into available habit patterns that aren't skillful. That can happen to any of us, we're all human. The sila, this integrity, is an incredible resource and refuge as we're deepening in our practice and all the way through a life of practice. And we continue stabilizing and maintaining awareness in all activities. Supasaka Ki said, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Ajahn Chah puts it like this. Within itself, the mind is timeless, naturally peaceful, unmoving. Rest in this natural state. If the changing sense impressions cause the mind to forget itself, to be deceived and entangled, your practice is to see this whole process and simply return to the original mind. Ajahn Sumedho puts it, it's like this, it's like this. Sayadaw Utejaniya says, ah, this is being known, this is being known. Suzuki Roshi, what we are speaking about is moment-to-moment enlightenment, one enlightenment after another. Small moments many times. Pema Chodron puts it like this. Three difficult practices are, one, to recognize your neurosis as neurosis. Two, then not do the habitual thing, but do something different to interrupt the neurotic habit. And three, make this practice a way of life. Good luck. (laughs) We can do it. So then in conclusion, we're back in the ordinary. Not the original ordinary. Ordinary, extraordinary, ordinary. And the thing about this side of the ordinary that's been digested and integrated and is starting to manifest differently but still ordinary is that sometimes it can actually feel like we've lost the insight. We've lost the aha. Be on the lookout for that. Because as the most profound insight you've ever had integrates, at some point it actually becomes so ordinary. And we're looking for something special. We're looking for something with charge. But it's digested so much that it is the new normal. But it's so much more awake than before. So don't be deceived. Become so ordinary we habituate to it, actually. I've, I've had that happen many times in my own practice. And that wanting it to be special again is simply wanting it to be special again. In fact, I think what we really deeply long for is to live it. Is to have the confidence that it's not going to be lost. 
And from this place, it's really where we can be of service. With humility in the most ordinary ways. And they don't know. We know what we know. They don't need to know. We don't need to proclaim it from the rooftops. Just this simple, ordinary activity. It's so important. I thank you in advance for your entire lifetime of this ordinary expression of your own awakenings. It has an impact. It matters. So I'll end with a quote from Karen Armstrong. She's the author of the book God and Buddha and Muhammad. She has a rich spiritual path of her own. Last summer I had the opportunity to read her spiritual memoir, which is called The Spiral Staircase. Amazing memoir about her, her path and spiritual activism. And this is a quote about empathy and joy. It's about self and not self. She says, but this pain is a small price to pay for the spirituality of empathy. Paradoxically, what I've gained from this identification with suffering is joy. This is something I did not expect. And this habit of looking outside myself into the heart of another has put me outside the prism of myself. This ecstasy may not last for long, but while it lasts, I experience an astonishing freedom. Self, after all, is our basic problem. When I wake up at three in the morning and ask myself, why does this have to happen to me? Why can I not have what X has? Why am I so unloved and unappreciated? And I still have plenty of moments like this. I learn that the ego is at the heart of all pain. And when I get beyond this for a few moments, I feel enlarged and enhanced just as the Buddha promised. So I deeply invite us all into the vastness of what the Buddha promised. And of its full and profound digestion and integration no part left out.